0: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss.
2: Is that? That's
3: the second time it's done, oh. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those guys.
4: And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can not you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team.
2: Second captain, first captain, whatever. I'd like to welcome you to today's Irish Times Second Captains podcast by quoting America's number one life and business strategist, Tony Robbins. I
4: thought you were going to say Donald Trump.
2: <laughs> if you do what you've always done, Ken, you'll get what you've always gotten. Apparently... Conor McGregor is not one of the 50 million people from 100 countries who Tony Robbins has empowered according to his website TonyRobbins.com yeah. because McGregor has accepted a rematch against Nate Diaz at the same weight against the wishes of the USC and against the wishes of his coach but well, that's according to Dana White <laughs> Yeah. what do you think?
4: I'm surprised yeah. well I'm not surprised because this has been we've they've been talking about this for a few weeks and so it's looks as though this was going to happen for some time it's been confirmed now uh i don't really understand i, I don't think it's you know a, a very strategic choice <laughs> no it doesn't seem <laughs> if you were to sit down and, and sort of carefully plot out what um, what to do next this would not be you know this is not rational it's irrational um I mean, it would be a big fight. It would be a huge uh, event. I'm sure he'll make a great deal of money, but there are huge risks. Mm. And really, the last one should have, the last one demonstrated that the risks are real. You know, you can't just, you can't just pretend that, uh, you know, belief, belief is going to make it so. Belief, belief is great, but there's a reality outside your own belief, which sometimes isn't going to be, isn't gonna fall into line.
2: It's funny you mention that because if you go back to the Jose Aldo fight, do you remember how delighted he was when it was pointed out to him afterwards in the press conference that he had predicted this exact moment, he predicted how it was going to happen and he talked yet again about how that's how it works for him. Mm. He predicts things, he makes things happen through the power of positive thinking. Something Tony Robbins might actually <laughs> maybe he does this. I would imagine well, Tony Robbins he, would agree with He did with him refer
4: better. specifically to the law of attraction in that mm. uh in that post flight press conference after Jose Elder. He referred specifically to it. You know, you get that law of attraction going and it works. But you know, law of attraction is bullshit. You know what I mean? So you gotta
5: <laughs> you, you you really can't state that strongly enough. So yeah. Utter horse shit.
4: It's 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 horse shit. So so while it has kind of served him well, uh, certainly, I mean, you can't you can't dispute the fact that his career in the aggregate has been this monumental success, along you know, far exceeding anyone else's expectations. It it hasn't worked all the time, and I would I would give him some advice that a great American philosopher gave: if you do what you've always done, you'll get what you've <laughs> always gotten. And what I'm saying is, if you continue to to think that you know. The law of attraction is going to run the world for for you. Or you're you're able to run the world through the power of your mind, and and it's going to come true for you. You're you're going to end up ignoring some risks, which there's a chance they're going to come and uh, and bite you. Hmm.
5: Even the insistence on the the higher weight class.
2: Yeah, that's the big thing. If people aren't aware that the fight, according to Dana White, again could have been made at lightweight so mcgregor has been featherweight for his career he that's what that's the way that he's champion at you know he jumped up two weight weight classes well initially he wasn't supposed to be fighting nate diaz but it ends up that he fights nate diaz at this much heavier weight
6: you little twerp (laughs)
2: this uh go get me my coffee i thought that might be somewhere on the hot buttons there so anyway he 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 loses that fight this rematch is being made and apparently could have been made at the at lightweight, so it could have been made. It was obviously not going to be a featherweight fight. Nate Diaz is not going to be getting into featherweight, but could have come down a little bit. But rather than that, Nate, D- um, rather than that, Conor McGregor says, "No, I'll go up again." And I'll yeah, it's, I'll it's like a, a out, you know, it's like a willful
5: um, decision on his part to recreate every single part of the Nate Diaz of the first Nate Diaz fight to win it, and then scrub the first Diaz fight entirely from history. Yeah. To which I wish I should say, really, what he should do then. Is wait until thirteen days before the fight, and then tell Nate Diaz mm-hmm. that uh, that he'll be that he that he's going to be his opponent. Because I mean that's it's the only reason. I mean it it, it doesn't make any sense to me other than that, just this this stubbornness that he obviously has um, to try and to to basically reclaim the loss, reclaim. Yeah, at
2: first it is a big deal. I mean, it is something that fighters do all the time. Lennox Lewis, I think, only lost two fights in his career and avenged both those defeats. And he can rightfully at the end of the... He, he, he can never look back and say, I never lost a fight, but he can say, look, I have my eye off the ball for two fights. avenge them both. Therefore, this is my legacy. So you, I can see the logic. I can see the logic behind it. But it's...
5: But what he's being stubborn about... I mean, I understand that he would like to go back and beat Ned Diaz, but he's being ridiculously stubborn about the weight class I would say I mean that it it's just it's stupid to me that he yeah. would that he would uh, decide to fight at 171 that, that part of it I don't
2: understand at all
4: well Diaz had said he wanted to fight at 155 that's his usual weight he said I want to fight I, I want to fight at that weight in order that he has no excuses
2: yeah
4: uh, he said that he said that about McGregor so so you know just to say let's do it at a fight which is closer to his previous fighting weight he will have no excuses McGregor evidently just wants to to kind of replicate all the conditions of the one before, but phew, he, he had some serious problems in that fight. I mean, uh, John Kavanaugh, for instance, the you know, the coach has, has written in his column today in the 42, trying to put a, quite a positive spin on things. I mean, he says things like money is certainly not a motivating factor anymore because he's already made plenty of it, which contradicts what <laughs> uh, McGregor says all the time. But he does... Um, I mean, he, he says, he tries to put a positive spin on what happened in that fight by saying, we've taken away like a treasure trove of information. We learned so, so much. You know what I mean? What you learned was that this this is a guy who can take some of the, the heaviest shots that McGregor can throw and apparently not really um, you suffer any damage from those at all and kind of keep coming. That's a kind of a, that's not a necessarily a, a promising thing to learn, you know, and, and to to do it at the same weight again. I don't
2: know. We're it's it's uh, it seems really risky. It's insanely risky. Well, you know the conversation that was had around the time that McGregor lost, and th- this is something that we thought would be interesting before he ever lost so when he eventually is defeated how will he react and I was away for the podcast I think immediately afterwards I was yeah and you guys had a really good conversation about that and clearly he he was very classy in def- so the idea was okay when he finally loses this aura of invincibility will he How? what's he going to be like will he be a shell of a man will he come out fighting and in the immediate aftermath of the fight what he was was a classy loser he, lo- he had lost. He said, listen, I have no problems with that. And you made the point at the time, Ken, that he's always like that after fights, actually. He's always quite just just quite normal yeah. and, and just is very kind and gracious to his opponent, whether he wins or now whether he loses. But the bigger part of the, the, the interest in how he's going to react to a defeat is what he does next and what happens to his mindset. And it seems like what's happened to his mindset is that he is doubling down on the self-belief He's yeah. pressing that, he's got that self-belief button and he's, he's really pressing down hard on it and he's convincing himself that this is a good idea, seemingly against the wishes of a lot of people in the sport.
0: Mm.
4: Well, it has, you know, it's worked for him in the past. So, you know, why change a mostly winning formula? Mm. You know, I suppose one reason to change it would be the obvious flaws in the strategy that were exposed by the last fight. You know, when he went into a situation which it turned out he couldn't handle. Um, you know, I think a lot, if, if you were to take a rational approach, you'd say, okay, well, that was, we made some mistakes there. I mean, Kavanaugh talks about mistakes that they made, uh, and that they're going to try and rectify, um. But just the selection of the fight against the same opponent doesn't seem to <laughs> suggest that they're gonna that you know, that many lessons have been learned.
2: We're gonna have MMA journalist Petey Carroll in studio today to talk about some of that. If you happen to be listening anywhere around the New York area, or you know people who might be interested in this, we're gonna be doing a mega live show in Manhattan in a couple of weeks. I haven't looked forward to a day's work as much as this, Murph, in a long time. We'll class it as work.
5: Yes, oh, and yeah, yeah, Of course, class it as work. My word. What kind of a comment is that to make on
2: brass monkey bar in the meat packing district is where it's all happening just email new york at second with your name and the number of tickets uh, that you're looking for and we'll immediately put you in the drawer deadline for entries is oh i'm just looking here it's midnight on thursday march 31st it's oh, wait, march 31st now um, it might even be after march 31st people listen to this <laughs> oh i'm so sorry listen throw an email in there anyway if it's, really we'll know, see if it, it might goes. just sneak in there I just don't know. down the tumbola, ken and yeah. let's make some dreams Come true. If you'd like to see some coverage of our last trip that was to San Francisco there's a nice video there on secondcaptains.com. Munster follow up Saturday's game against Leinster at the Aviva with a trip to Galway to play all-conquering Connacht and Donald Lenehan made the point in his Examiner column this week. It's not overstating the case to suggest that Munster's medium term future is on the line in those upcoming contests at the Aviva Stadium and the sports ground. Shane Horgan and Liam Toland are going to react to that. First of all Liam do you agree with Donald? How important are these two fixtures for Munster?
3: hugely important and you can look at it from a variety of angles but the empty seats in Thoman Park is, is primarily one of them um, and they're hemorrhaging money from that point of view. So further losses, and the, the crowd are in a kind of a fickle place uh, that have grown up over the last 10 or 15 years sh- through expecting huge success and are a little bit confused. Um, and with the advent of other aspects of the economy as well, there's a lot more seats empty. Further losses will, will certainly erode that even further. So that's one aspect of it, uh, attracting new players, uh, the competition in Europe are you're going to be in the Challenge Cup or the Champions Cup. There's a myriad of different things, not to mention a lot of the Munster players uh, it is one of those final trial games as well, an opportunity to, to stake your claim for South Africa.
2: Uh, and attracting, you mentioned attracting players. Donald made the point that it, it could be difficult to attract the best candidates for the new director of rugby role. This is a route that Munster are going down now if they're not in the Champions Cup.
3: Well, I think the, the, the way that the potential future director of rugby is going to look at it is what's the potential in the club. So regardless of where they are currently, um, is there potential for growth, and there 's massive potential for growth and Without getting bogged down in a thesis of ideas now uh, the academy hasn 't been functioning uh, to the level it should be uh, there 's lots of reasons for that, but then the bottom line in the professional game it 's up to the professional people running it to make the, the most of the assets that they have. Um, there is huge potential there, but they still need four or five when, you, when the likes of Peter Manny, these guys come back from injury, obviously, but they still need four or five real marquee names that would make a big difference.
2: What about the director of rugby, Shane? Do you think that they would potentially... Because this, well, firstly, I mean, we haven't actually talked about this on the podcast. This, they announced this a couple of weeks ago. A bit of a strange one. It was this, the same press release that announced Anthony Foley's extension, uh, taking up the final... The, the, so I should say the next year of his contract. Uh, in that same statement, they said, we're also going to be appointing a director of rugby for next season. Is it a slightly um, a strange situation now where they're, they've announced that there is going to be this new position, that they are going to have candidates without actually having somebody lined up uh, to, to do it?
1: Uh, I don't think that's particularly strange. Um, I think maybe they were trying to take some pressure off uh, Anthony Foley. I think trying to... What's more pressing is um, who are they going to be able to get to fill this role? Mm. Um, it is... In many ways, um, a really interesting run, and that could be rewarding, and you could see there could be opportunity to do well in it, but um, I suppose what are the parameters of it for one, I know they want to overhaul the academy uh, what's your what are the, what's the role in regard to input into the um, first team relationship with Anthony Foley that goes both ways um, Is this being foisted upon him, or is this something that he's happy to have uh, some re- some of the responsibility taken out of his hands? And then I suppose um, also the remuneration and what uh, Munster can offer a director of rugby. Will they be able to get a top um, level director of rugby in uh, for um, given the budget constraints that they may or uh, may not be under? Also, Liam mentioned there that Munster need four or five key players. They just won't be able to recruit uh, four or five key players. They won't have the budget to do it. It goes against IRFU policy. So, a lot of what will need to be done with Munster over the next, um, you know, medium term, if that's what we're talking about, is to get more out of the academy, get better players through, and retain the best ones that hasn't that hasn't happened um, on a couple of occasions so far, and then hopefully get you know maybe one, maybe two names in, and they might even be extremely top tier names into um, help along the way, but the revival from Munster and the medium and long-term development of Munster will come about only from Indigenous players.
2: And some of those Indigenous players are, we shouldn't forget Liam, in pretty good form. I mean, a lot of Ireland's best players CJ Stander, Conor Murray, Simon Zebo had his moments, uh, Tommy O'Donnell, Duncan Ryan. These guys were all among Ireland's better performers during the Six Nations. Uh, is there, uh, I know it's been, it is a strange time. As you say, there's a bit of almost confusion among supporters as to where the club is going over the last few seasons. But in terms of their very best players, surely they can mix it with Lancer this Saturday.
3: Oh, 100%. They can. I just think that the the average quality that lies within the Leinster setup is still superior to that of Munster. So, if you just take it, take the emotion out of the game, take a lot of the other historical factors out of the game, I think the average player, if you take the mean or whatever the the mathematical term for it is, still higher in the Leinster um, uh, senior squad than it is in Munster. So that should. But we know emotion and we know history plays a lot in this particular fixture. But if you're looking at the the Guinness Pro12 table, like Munster having played 18, like the, all those above them. Um, They've lost two games. That's that's the difference. They're not scoring as many bonus points. I know they did a massive day against the Italians last weekend, but they're not scoring tri-bonus points. For Connacht, they're nearly double it, four to seven, and that sort of stuff. So Munster aren't miles off it. And part of the the troubling bit for me is when I watch them in their warm-ups in particular they're flying it, they're passing the ball out in front of them, they're running onto the ball, there's such confidence around what it's doing, and this is partially unopposed warm-up. But when they get into the game and the real pressure comes on, that's when a lot of the decision-making process around what to do next um, is struggling, and their execution around that is struggling. And you look at Connacht against Leinster last week, they had had a game plan, they understood it, they made mistakes like all teams do, but they executed some very nice, uh, exciting patterns of play Their forwards, like the likes of Dennis Buckley, who was awesome, have the ability to do things and make good decisions. So Munster still, when the pressure comes on, are struggling that way. And that's why I think that... Ulster with the team they've picked and certainly the quality in Leinster that should put them ahead. But then when you factor in emotion and all that sort of stuff, of course, the fixture can turn out differently.
2: When you say you see them in the warm-ups, that everything looks sharp, everything's going to plan. Uh, does, does that indicate to you that the skill set is actually at the required level or the fact that it's breaking down under pressure? Would that show you that there's a deficit there? I mean, a, a lot of people can look good in a warm-up.
3: I suppose if you, if you define the word talent, it's the ability to execute a skill um, that isn't physical based. So, uh, and to do so under pressure is, is the key part of that talent, and that's a problem for um, Monster. And it's the subtle things. It's like when there is a turnover inside their 22. With a wonderful opportunity to track space, and the player who gains the turnover and passes to someone else, they make a bad decision and the door closes. Like a, the door of an opportunity might open just for a fraction of a moment, and the best sides. Um, are able to exploit that when Leinster in their pomp when Shane was playing there they were able to exploit that they're struggling a bit with that too but Munster in particular and 3v2s they're not converting 3v2s against like Zebra they will but at the higher up the food chain they're struggling around that so I would say there's a skill deficiency in, in executing first of all around their decision making process and second of all in executing it
2: Shane, Connor Murray touched on one of your favourite topics there is probably a bit of frustration in our group to go up there and play with our hearts and hopefully with a bit more Passion than we have this year. He also mentioned the term "defensive hunger" at one stage. Uh, now, this is what a player says to the media, so maybe we shouldn't take any notice of it anyway. But I mean, what Liam's talking about there is very different. It's a, it's about executing skills under under pressure, which seems to be Munster's issue more so than whether or not they have the passion.
1: Yeah, uh, I've rarely found. Um Monster lacking in passion, uh, even this year, and it hasn't been a great year for them. In the last couple of years, I don't think that's an issue for them. Um, I think occasionally when they haven't played well, and we've seen them um, go away to Stade Français, and they didn't look as if they were up for the game. But very often you can conflate the uh, uh, when someone's having a bad game and things aren't working right with. Just not having enough passion and not caring enough, and not, rarely I've found that to be a case, and even uh, less rarely with uh, any monster team i've watched, so I think what Connor is talking about there um is one of the factors that's maybe inhibiting. Uh, Munster and playing the way that they should. I think what we've seen from Connacht is um, emerging uh, and and, uh, a falling down of that demarcation between forwards and backs and all those Connacht forwards are very comfortable at the moment um, taking and giving the ball um, stepping moving the ball into the wider channels and not just hitting the ball up. Now they didn't. They, they didn't do it brilliantly well at the weekend against Leinster. Lots of balls on the ground, lots of mistakes, lots of turnovers. But they kept on doing it. Now Leinster were really poor, and they should have exploited um, the mistakes that were made. But it didn't stop Connacht uh, forwards or backs from trying stuff. And I think once you're in that headspace. You've got a real chance for you know to develop opportunities. Now, if you don't execute them right, then you might you might break down. But if you don't do them at all, I think you're really limiting your chance to play at the very top of your game. And at that moment, that demarcation between monstrous um, forwards and backs, I think, is really, really, sev- really um, uh, exaggerated. You know, when forwards get the ball, you know what they're doing. They're carrying the ball really violently, really explosively if they can. But you sort of know what they're doing. And backs, you know, have a little bit more subtly, but there's not the interplay between the two. So I think Connacht have really shown the way for both Munster and Leinster of what you can do and how you can evolve your game without resorting to... Uh, we're going to have to have in, even more passion and even more committed and even more hunger because those you can only go so far. And I mean, listen, you need it. And um, emotion is a really important aspect of um, Irish rugby in particular. But I, I think too often we're leaving um, a, a huge percentage of our game plan up to emotion. And it's it's not enough.
2: What do you think, Liam? Uh,
3: I'm just thinking, uh, as Shane was talking there, I was thinking of, of the challenge-facing CJ Stander, who, when he got his international debut, I think in the opening five, six minutes, he got it like, it was a manna for heaven. And stuff. he got on the ball, he made yards and he continued with the, in that vein throughout the, the, the championship. Uh, phenomenal ball carrier. But therein lies the slight paradox of sorts because, when when you think of the disconnect, that Shane is referring, between the, the the forward style of game that Munster have have reverted back to heavily, but when you look at their back three and you see particularly Zebo and and Earls, and you say, Wow! If you could give them the proper ball, these guys are very creative. They're electric pace and they're they're, they're they can add superb value to the ball. Yet they're getting precious few opportunities and they have to really go hunting for the ball for it to come. And they're being handed ball that isn't. Wonderful for them to attack off. So, part of the, the challenge for me when you're looking at CJ Stander is yes, we know he can carry the ball and do unbelievable damage. Now, if he could add a few things to that, if he could add a subtle uh, offload, because defences, particularly in Dublin at the weekend, they're going to say, and you say the likes of Reese Ruddock is going to say, listen, wherever that guy pops up near the ball, I'm going to smash him. But he won't be the only Leinster guy. There'll be guys queuing up to hit him because they know how good he is carrying the ball. Now, if Stander can think beyond the four or five yards and get which have huge value to a team and think of where can the space be be exploited how can I get key girls into space sometimes that's literally carrying the ball into heavy traffic gaining a quick ruck balling out sometimes it's a, a deft offload subtle to another forward who's a bit wider and the ball gets spread or sometimes it's actually running decoy lines running hard as if you're going to get the ball and fixing defences so in there that use of someone like CJ Stander we know what he can do but what can he do to add even more value and create more space for players out wide? And that's, the that's for me, the interesting thing that Munster and, indeed, Irish Rugby have. How to utilise one asset that ultimately unlocks space for a really better asset, a flying winger.
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting point, Shane. I think, you know, if CJ Stander were sitting here, he might say, well, listen, me carrying it straight up like that and and and, bus and Lads and all the rest of it actually softens up defences. fences. And if other people around me were there to, I don't know why I'm now speaking C.J. Sanders' voice, by the way, but uh, that if other people were around to maybe back me up, then then that would be fine. It seems to me like C.J. Sanders is doing his job, his job spec, carrying out carrying it out perfectly and maybe the players around him need to do some of uh, what Liam talks about there.
1: No, he's not carrying out his job spec perfectly. He's carrying out one aspect of his job spec perfectly. And... I'm not just talking about CJ standard here I'm talking right across the board actually for for Munster and Leinster at the moment uh, with very few exceptions. Um, on both teams and this is transmitted into the Irish setup as well and we've seen it demonstrated um, through the Ireland play as well that um, that backs, the forwards are so regimented into the way they should play that their commitment is, is not to be questioned but um, the de- development of the game needs more than that and if the, I want to move away from CJ Standard because he's done so many good things. I don't want it's, it's kind of harsh on him. But if the uh, Leinster forwards or the Leinster backs indeed want to, an example of a, a guy who can influence a game with his ball carrying, but also in another way, look at the Six Nations. Look at Billy Vanapolo. and the first couple of carries almost in every game. It wasn't a big crash up, but it was was running into space, sitting defences down, and then dropping the ball off, very often to Ford, sometimes to Farrell on that little wraparound run, and stopping defences. And not just stopping defences for that that time, because um the first couple of minutes of every game, there's nobody is going to leave Billy, Billy Vanapolo, or CJ Stander, let me tell you, the way he carried the ball, nobody is going to push off him in defence. You were going to have to get ready, get your shoulder ready, get your feet ready and be almost planted ready for the hit otherwise he's going to steamroll you now the next time he gives the ball away, gives the ball back to one of the you know 10 or 12 you're thinking in your mind hang on a second I'm, I can't sit down here I'm leaving the space out wide and then as soon as you do that that's when you do take on the ball that's when the Billy Von Apollo did and made big yards and we saw Hartley do it as well we saw a number of English forwards and it was just a change in the mindset and I've no doubt that these Uh, Irish players whether they be from Leinster and Munster have the skill set and I actually think they have a higher skill set than Connacht Uh, the Connacht players in the same position but the Connacht players are doing it and Leinster and Munster players aren't doing it they have an example now for the Six Nations of one of the biggest most powerful ball carriers doing it and I think they do well they'd be well served to uh, modify their game as a result of it
2: That's brilliant stuff just before you go a prediction for Saturday off both of you Shane?
1: Um, I think uh, Lancer will win at home, um, especially with Sexton back. I thought uh, Madigan was seemed a bit disinterested the weekend, and it had an effect on the game. And um, I think they playing at home will have a little bit of an edge, and they'll win.
2: But I did say a quick question, but that's an interesting comment. Madigan seemed disinterested because he's yeah. kind of moving on, or what do you well, think? Well, I
1: don't know. I I I saw him. Uh, there was one particular tackle in the first half, or attempted tackle in the fir- first half. I was really surprised at mm-hmm. uh, how he, he barely even got a shoulder on, on the man running in. I just thought it smacked to someone who wasn't that interested in in, in, um, in playing. Yeah, you know, whether that was just, he'd got his timing wrong or not. But um, I thought, uh, I think Sexton will have a big influence in the game.
3: Liam? Yeah, just to add to that, when you lose seven points to six and you've, you're camped in the opposition's 22 for the vast majority of the second half and you just don't simply take a drop goal, you kind of say, well, where's the management of that fixture in that sense? So that's, that's a worrying concern. But um, the halfbacks are going to be the, the winning and telling and all this. If there's a little bit of subtlety in Munster's game around what I was suggesting, c g Stander and others, they might be able to, to stretch Leinster a bit, who... Who defended poorly at many times around the fringe and that, but ultimately the average player in Leinster is superior. They're at home, both need a win, but I think Leinster will get it.
2: Excellent stuff, lads. Thanks so much, Liam Tolan and Shane Horgan. Thanks. Thanks, Emil. I'm glad that Shane did clarify that this isn't just about CJ Sander, Simon, because no. <laughs> Sander, had a pre- Sander made nonsense of that idea that it's supposed to take you 15 or 20 games to adapt to the rigours of international rugby. He just came in and busted people, and, well, more, more to the point, carried ball hard like he has been doing for Munster the whole season.
0: Yeah, maybe Ireland's best player and definitely Munster's best player this season and I th- I know why he became the topic of conversation there between the two lads, but if you were to list the priorities for Munster and what they need to improve on and get right, I'd nearly have CJ Standard at the bottom of that list. Um, you don't think, like, he, the, like he, the lads,
2: that it's sort of indicative that if the guy, if like Shane says that's what he's doing there, carrying the ball hard, softening up defences, I think is the phrase that I use, is actually just one part of his job spec. He's doing that perfectly. But for Munster to develop uh, a more all-round game plan, their best players, like Stander, have to be able to interact with the backs and have to be able to move the ball.
0: Ideally, obviously, if he could evolve to the point that Billy Vunapola has, that would be great for Munster. But they've so many other elements to their game, and uh, the other 14 starting players have far more to do to get up to the level that CJ Stander is at at the moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the lads talked about academy, director of rugby, things off the field the back three combining all these other millions of elements. And also, we talked about Director Rugby there. If they were to do one thing this summer, I would say it is to source a new Mm -hmm. out-half. I mean, Keatley has been consistent at times, but now, when his confidence is low, I mean, out-half is one of those positions where your lowest low can't be very low, otherwise the whole team falls apart. And Keatley has shown this season, when it goes wrong for him, it goes badly wrong.
2: Uh, If you missed our chat, if you are wondering why not talking about the other game, we talked a lot about uh, Connacht Ulster On Monday Murphy you going up to Ravenhill Are you going to the Stadium What's your plan for the weekend
5: Well listen I'd love to Nothing to make me happier But I mean I already have A pretty big sporting event On the, Ooh, on the agenda hot, so. hot sporting date <sighs> Gird your loins, Cavan Because uh, I'm coming Cavan against Galway Division 2 Promotion Showdown uh, on. I just hope I'll be able To get a ticket Ken I
0: ju- just laughed at you there, I don't know if he No, I know, picked I did, I,
5: I, did. I, I picked that up, that's fine. But I'm going to ignore him. Uh, it's because, I mean, really, this is all that you could hope for from a sporting event. It's the swashbuckling entertainers of the game, Galway, against uh, a team popularly known as the Black Death. Well, you'll probably call them that once and then apologise for it. But either way, <laughs> way on, either way. Uh, and obviously, I mean, some people had naysayers. You know, deck. keyboard keyboard <laughs> not warriors.
2: Like, not like Brody to be overly dramatic. In, keyboard in warriors
5: would would come at me and say stuff like, "Oh, but Cavan have the best scoring average in the top two divisions and have scored more than all but two teams in the top two divisions." Ah, listen, you know, stats. You know, they could you can you can prove that with stats on, and I think uh, they're going to get a good uh, uh, get get their fill on Sunday Sunday afternoon. The winners go straight up to Division One. Uh, back to our rightful place on. that's what it's all about. I didn't realise
2: that keyboard war- keyboard warriors usually came armed with stats. I thought it was usually just vitriol. Stats and vitriol. Stats and vitriol is a good mix for a keyboard warrior. I oh, it's, yeah, it's a, absolutely. We weren't expecting that, were you? We weren't expecting the stat there, Mr. Galway <laughs> Man. Well, whatever. Let's pre-promote. Speech impediment.
4: <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. You just <laughs> turned, turned into a bullying <laughs> keyboard warrior there for a second. just trying to I really think. get into character. Yeah, then all the other things that came to my head seemed actually too offensive to right, say. Right, so you just... I just left, left that, that one out there.
2: Let's promote the Irish Times second captain's <laughs> football podcast.
0: That's, yeah, they have
1: asked for that, really. Well no, you
4: can laugh, I to walk
1: up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me.
6: You don't know what you're talking about. Well, yeah. i you know like to stay alive right, to stay I'd stay now. Ahead, and I'd say it to you, but not saying it oh, to them. What to you now. Mean, what you're doing down here? You're me, man.
4: Well, we talked to Philippe Beauclair about the um, sort of renaissance of the French uh, football team at the moment. We'd spoken to Emmanuel Petit, obviously, a couple of weeks back. Um, and he had some quite sceptical views about the current squad and whether they really appreciated what they were getting involved in here. Um, Philippe is is fairly heartened I think by what he's seen over the International Week we're also going to talk to Ed Malian or did talk I should say to Ed Malian in Spain about the uh, end of Gary Neville's uh, career at Valencia
2: you also recounted your experience of Windsor Park on Monday night where you attended Northern Ireland versus Slovenia did you meet the main man up there? Jackie Fullerton? no oh, the main man you know who I'm talking about uh. Uh. No, I didn't uh didn't get to didn't see him. Not to worry again. Today's Nesbitt Fact. Yeah. By the time of the third series of Cold Feet, Nesbitt and the other cast members were able to influence the show's production. An episode featuring Adam Stag Weekend was due to be filmed on location in Dublin, but Nesbitt suggested it be filmed in Belfast and Port Rush instead. <laughs> Indeed, several scenes were filmed at his old workplace. Can you remember it, Murph?
5: Uh uh, no, Cold Feet. No, no, no no, no, no,
2: no, not forget about Cold Feet. Can you remember James Nesbitt's first workplace? workplace? This was in oh. a previous episode of Nesbitt's oh. Fact. Uh,
5: Barry's Amusement Arcade. Yeah. Come it. on!
2: That's pretty good. That's good. That's pretty I good. I thought you would. Several scenes were filmed at his old workplace, Barry's Amusements, although they were later cut from the broadcast <laughs> episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah this is, oh that's what it says. that's amazing.
3: Okay.
2: Well, I just remember, well, I remembered Barry's Amusements. Mm. Barry's Amusement Arcades. Let's play... I love when we play, the, play it again. Let's play the bet
6: again. Ah, One
2: football story we didn't cover, Ken, which came to your attention about 10 seconds after we, we finished uh, wrapping that up and posting it, was this US women's soccer team yeah. have uh, been making an interesting stand. Well, it's, it it's
4: a good story from Andrew Das in New York Times who has... Uh, he reports that five of the um, U.S. women's uh, national team uh, and five of the biggest players, Carly Lloyd, Becky Sauerbrunn, Alex Morgan, Megan Rapinoe, and Hope Solo, have uh, filed a federal complaint against U.S. soccer, which which obviously employs both national teams, um, uh, accusing them of wage discrimination. So, essentially, they're saying, we... Um, we are getting paid a lot less than the men for doing the same work.
2: This ah. isn't fair. So it's like an inversion of the Novak like Djokovic
4: argument. Well, the thing the, the thing that makes this interesting is that, okay, there's always, the. it is the case that uh, in women's football, um, typically the players get paid a lot less than the men. That is, you know, definite, that's definitely been the way. This issue blew up uh, a couple of years ago in Sweden when... Um, I think the issue then was that, this and this is off the top of my head, but essentially the, that the Swedish Women's Player of the Year was annoyed that she, uh, you know, she essentially had won the equivalent award to Zlatan Ibrahimović, who wins that award pretty much every year uh, for the Swedish men, but he had been given like a car, was it a Saab or something, he got, mm. essentially his prize came with a lot more, you know, um, prizes <laughs> attached. And she didn't. She she thought this was out of order. You know, we're both the player of the year. You know, why does he get this and I don't get this? And he he came back with uh, an argument much like the one uh, made by Novak Djokovic a couple of weeks ago when he um, he ended up uh, making some comments on on the issue, the same issue in tennis. And Zlatan's point was, yeah, you know, well, when when eighty thousand people are coming to see you. You know, then get back to me. You know, people all around the world are are looking at me. No one is watching your games. That's why I get more. You know, you can say we're doing the same work, but actually, I'm the one who's who's generating all the money. Therefore, I'm. Therefore, that's why I get uh, rewarded to a greater extent. Djokovic made a similar point um, uh, when he was uh, speaking about uh, tennis. Uh, The difference in this case is that the women's national team in the United States is bigger than the men's. Right. So why are they getting paid less? Right. So um, this year, they apparently will made more money for U.S. soccer than the men's team. Next year, they're projected to also make more money um, than the men's team. They're obviously the world champions at the moment, whereas the best the men's team have ever managed just to finish in the quarterfinals uh, or to so, you know, so get to the quarterfinals. They've won the Olympics. Um, They've
5: qualified for the Olympics and the U.S. men's team haven't?
4: Yeah, they're going to... Quite probably win the Olympics, and then they do these victory tours. They did one after the World Cup, which makes a lot of money for the governing body. And they're saying we don't get anything like the same amount of money. So, um, uh, what they what they claim, for instance, is that um, if you're a, if you're a member of like the women's you know soccer squad for the you actually you actually get a salary of about seventy two thousand uh, dollars, and then you get bonuses. Um, but the bonus structure is totally different a man, uh, uh, a a man's player if he's called up he gets uh $5000 for losing a friendly a woman will receive 1350 for winning uh but that's only if they win they get 0 if they draw or lose so losing if if you're a man you lose a friendly match you get 5 grand if you win that you might get nearly 20 grand so they're making them, well, well this isn't fair you know why uh why are they and and Okay, so the federal complaint has been filed. US soccer will obviously try and US soccer's argument will be along the lines of Well you've agreed to all this. You know, what's what's the problem? You've agreed. Mm. everyone everyone's signed up, but they're essentially saying that the deal is unfair. And um, and unlike women's players uh, who make the same complaints elsewhere in the world? They actually have.
2: Yeah, because it really does. I don't know about the uh, specifics of the numbers, but I was over in uh, w- Washington when well, I Washington DC when the Women's World Cup was on, and when America were progressing in that, and the excitement was insane. It didn't. It doesn't. Didn't matter that it was. It was. Uh, as you're saying, it's their team. You mean the
4: '99 World Cup? No, no, last year. Oh, last year. okay. Yeah,
2: yeah. As they were progressing in that World Cup. Uh, and the support was unbelievable. For you know, it really felt like this, big, this massive big event was going on, which isn't easy. It's not always easy when you're in American cities to tap into a sporting event, to tap, a worldwide sporting event. But it's really quite obvious. So that's I know it's purely anecdotal, but I think anybody would accept that the women's team is hugely supported in America.
5: Yeah, and I mean, I'm not uh, I'm not a, an American lawyer, uh, but I mean, one thing that is enshrined in law is that if uh, uh, colleges are funded. If men's sport in colleges are funded, then the, the women's equivalent of that sport they have to match that funding. It's called Title IX, which mm-hmm. is a huge, huge thing brought in in the nineteen seventies, which Americans will tell you has done huge things to promote sport in the U.S. So this idea that, uh, I mean, it, it, you know, it's it's not new to the courtrooms of America for for the courts to be a battleground. Uh, in sort of gender equality in sports. So this, I mean, this argument was probably always going to come down the was always going to arrive somewhere. And the fact that it's happening in America where the women seem to have a pretty compelling case uh, makes this pretty interesting.
2: PT Carroll, MMA journalist, has popped into studio. PT, to discuss the rematch that has been announced. Conor McGregor will fight Nate Diaz again. This is part of the UFC 200, uh, headline of the UFC 200 event, indeed announced for July 9th. At the same weight as they fought previously, is this such a wise move by McGregor?
6: I don't think it is, to be honest. Um, you know, the one thing that's that was kind of blatantly obvious to everyone that watched that uh, fight in March was the fact that, you know, Conor was not conditioned for that weight class at all. Uh, the potency of his shots really wasn't there at welterweight either. Um, you know, a lot of people are trying to say Nate Diaz and him are pretty much the same weight, but you know, I think I think the size difference is quite obvious. And the fact that you know Nate Diaz shifted about 13 pounds reportedly to to make the weight. Well, Connor was kind of pushing himself up, eating two breakfasts as he constantly said to make <laughs> the weight. You know, it just seems it seems to me that there is quite a substantial difference in their size and. You know, these, these, these shots that he, that he was knocking everybody else down with doesn't really work with uh, against Nate.
2: Yeah, and the interesting part of it is that, according to Dana White anyway, I know we often have to take what Dana White says with a pinch of salt, but he, he's saying that there was an option to fight at um, at 145, which would be... Would One, you- 155 against
4: Diaz or 145 against... Aldo,
2: or uh, yeah, well, you know, he's obsessed with fighting Nate like Diaz again. Obviously, the Renzo and I tried to argue with him and say, let's go back down to 145 defend your title. Or if you really want Diaz uh, fight that bad, do it at 155, I should say. Sorry, yeah, but he wants to fight at 170. So he's saying that there was potentially an option there to, if, if I read that right, to force the Diaz uh, to essentially force Diaz to lose some more weight and get down to a weight he'd be uncomfortable with, and that McGregor be more comfortable with, but. Maybe it's McGregor's pride which insists that he has to has to show he can do it at the heavier weight against the same guy.
6: Absolutely, and you know what I mean. I don't. I've never really heard of promoters kind of just bowing down to people's demands like that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Nate Diaz actually fights at fifty five an awful lot. Uh, that's that's his preferred weight class. But still, you know, um, it would make sense a lot more sense for Conor to be at fifty five than seventy because obviously that's a twenty five pound difference. And I even said to a his uh, strength and conditioning coach George Lockhart, like before Dos pulled out of his lightweight debut, I said, you know, how long would it take Connor to get up to one seventy? He said he'd have to take six months off and get his body ready for that weight class, and then Dos Anjos pulls out, and then it's like, oh, we're going to one seventy. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 the,
4: so, what would take time is essentially building himself up to the point where he then had to lose weight mm. to get back down for for the fight. I mean, John Kavanagh writes a column for the Forty Two, mm. uh, which I'm sure a lot of people have seen, but. He I mean he says a couple of, of interesting things in this. Uh one one party says Connor's cardio wasn't as it should have been, but there was certainly no complacency. We didn't train any differently for the fight. I believe it was more a case of there being a strategy error, i.e. trying to stop a bigger man who's known for having a strong chin with every single punch. When you're landing punches on any opponent, it gets tiring. I mean, what what do you make of that the the, the fact that he just kinda of says Connor's Connor's cardio wasn't as it should have been? That's I find that a strange thing to say, given that this is a fight he'd been—he knew was going to happen. He'd been training for it for a long time. It should have been up to scratch.
6: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the thing that most people were saying before that fight was the fact that Nate Diaz has taken this this fight in short notice. Connor's completely ready to fight. He should have had his sparring rounds in. He should have everything had everything ready to go in against Diaz. Um, I find it a little bit surprising. John said that, but I find it surprising more so that you know UFC like Connor obviously has to be as confident as he is. Like, that's a massive part of why he's so successful, that kind of crazy confidence that he has. He he doesn't believe he can be defeated. But someone has to be there to rein that back, whether it's his promoter. We've seen promoters do this in boxing for years, or his coach, or someone, his management team. Somebody should have said, you know, this is a bit of a risk. This is a massive risk. Like, I mean, it seems crazy that, like, it was so close to UFC 200. Obviously, that's their marquee show. This, This rematch has been announced for it, though. But the fact that UFC were putting them in before that big show made me confident. Like, well, obviously they wouldn't risk this, you know. Like that, that wouldn't be that silly. But, uh, you know, everybody on press row in Vegas that day was completely shocked. You know, like, like I think one guy, a Spanish guy, had picked Diaz. You know what I mean? Like that's that's how confident we, we all kind of we all kind of drank the Kool Aid. You know what I mean? But. You have to kind of think that the promoters, the coaches, the management know more than you. You know, like yeah. you have to think that someone there could rein them back. Uh,
4: I mean, the, the fact then of the the weight they've chosen to do that seems to be a related issue on this. You know, I mean, if you're going to fight it a, he- a heavier weight, um, then that's that's going to make it more difficult than I mean, to get in condition to go five rounds. Now, Sonny O'Sullivan, uh, after the last uh, fight, uh, wrote a column which I think. Didn't go down very well with with a lot of MMA fans. Death zone. Uh, The death zone uh, is uh, the headline on the article, which I'm pretty sure Sonia didn't write. Is MMA really sport if it enters the death zone? Uh, But one thing... And people are saying, Oh, Sonia, you don't know anything about MMA. You know, educate yourself just because there's blood and people lose consciousness and stuff doesn't mean it's, you know, really bad or anything. But one thing she does know a lot about, Sonia O'Sullivan, in fairness, is fitness. And she wrote... um, Sure. McGregor is among the fittest, leanest athletes that I've ever seen. But when he took to the octagon in Las Vegas last weekend, he looked like a bloated version of what I'd seen before. He appeared to have an extra layer of himself on top of himself, um, which is an observation from someone who yeah, knows, how to, knows a bit about cardio. Why would he then, if given the fact that this is an obvious shortfall that he had, or, you know, his coach is saying that was a problem and. Um, Presumably they've talked about that. Why would he not then at least say, "All right, well, we're going to fight it at a, at a weight where it's closer to what I've been doing before," and evidently I've I've looked fitter when I've been at lower weights. Why would he not at least give himself?
6: I think I think it's I think it's ego. You know, really, I think you know, I think if anyone looks at Connor, I mean, no one's going to be surprised to know that you know he's got quite a quite a big ego, and I mean, he wants to show everybody that this was just a once-off. But the, the weird thing for me is when I look at UFC 200, it's like. Connor's holding up the whole promotion. You know, mm. they have an interim title there. Yeah. But, like, what does that mean? Does that, that mean...
4: That means... So you're talking here about the featherweight belt, which he's not going yeah, to defend. So, so they, it'll be Aldo, Jose Aldo against Frankie Edgar.
6: Yeah, so, I mean, they, they'll fight for an interim title. Usually we only see interim titles when a champion has, has not been able to defend his title for a year. You know, he's been injured and, and they have to keep the division going, so to speak. But what it's, it's weird to me that he's fighting at 170, 25 pounds above featherweight. They're going to contest for the featherweight belt. So, what what happens if Connor wins? You know, does he then... Because, I mean, he's going to want to fight for the 170 title then, you know. That's, that's what the whole thing is about. He wants to get multiple titles. So, what happens there to their interim title?
2: Yeah, it seems incredible that they're allowing him to, to do this. But this is something that we have talked about in previous podcasts, the, the power that he seems to wield there. Now, well, I'm quite interested just... You made the point earlier that somebody has to rein him in, be it the promoter be it the coach or whatever, I would have thought it's really down to the coach. I mean, John Kavanagh is the guy who's been there from the start and they clearly have this very close relationship. But Dana White is saying even Kavanagh tried to get him to get off this rematch and off the £170 fight, but it's what he wanted and he's going to get it. Now, not surprising, John Kavanagh in that column that Ken referenced doesn't say that. What he does say is that immediately after the fight everybody was shoving microphones in McGregor's face and McGregor was talking about going back down and defending his featherweight title which he would have been happy with. Kavanaugh does say that but that things changed and pretty soon after the fight the the burning desire to, to prove himself I guess and to prove that he's better than he showed m- meant that McGregor started hounding Dana White for this rematch. Somewhere along the line though is it, is it not down to John Kavanaugh? I mean would you take Dana White had his word there that that Cabinet wouldn't have wanted him to fight this rematch at the same weight?
6: You know, it's it's hard to know really. Um you know, Dana White's comments tend to be fairly loose at, at the best, you know, like sometimes he'll say something you know, fifty headlines will come out of it and then the fighter in question will say, No, that that actually never happened. So it's it's very hard to tell in that regard. But um, you know, I do. I I 100% believe that this is completely Connor's decision, and he's saying, you know, th- this is what I want to do. Whether that's a good idea, whether should, someone should be in there, I certainly think someone should be in there to the kind of say, and someone that he listens to, someone that he will take their opinion on board, and, and he will kind of go back down. If if John has asked him to fight a featherweight and he hasn't taken that, you know, it's what else can he do? I suppose. But I mean, this it is. Uh, it's it's obviously a huge
4: change that McGregor's gone through in his in his life over the last three and a half years, three three years or so. Um, you know if, when you become kind of so much wealthier so much more famous than almost everyone in your old circle it, it I suppose it puts your relationships under a little bit of strain I mean who who is there to to kind of to take guidance from or who, who we actually sort of trust to advise him on his career at this stage
6: it's very hard to tell it's it's very hard to tell Um that that's I didn't actually see that comment to Dana White saying you know John had actually asked him that but I mean if you're thinking if John can't get through to him, who who can? You know, he he's the guy that's been in control of his career for for his whole career. You know what I mean? He's taken Connor from, you know, his first steps in MMA right up to the, the biggest stages in the world. So it's very hard to tell what's going on there. But it shouldn't really be just you know, I think the promoters, like it's their money, let's be let's be honest. Like they should be saying what, what they want to happen, you know what I mean? Um <laughs> Well what happens if he loses? Because this is I think it's I think it's detrimental if he loses. Oh well, it, it's it, a disaster. It, you can't you can't like I mean I don't think losses mean as much as mixed martial arts. Like, they don't. But two but, in a row. Yeah, two in a row is, is, fairly, is fairly, it's devastating for a guy that literally made his name off saying these people aren't on the same level as me. I'm going to literally tear through the field. If you lose two fights and two fights against an opponent that you should never have faced. Like, you know, this is the thing that nobody's really talking about either. When Dasanio's pulled out, every other fight in the world would have pulled out and just said, okay, we'll do it again. Mm. Like, there was not, it's not necessary to take a fight in two weeks' notice. He did it against Mendez. I think it's become his calling card to a certain degree. Like, oh, I don't care. Yeah. I'm fearless. I'll go in and do this. But it's always, it's always got the potential to blow up in your face and basically that's what we saw in March.
2: Yeah, it's, it sort of seems to be a big mistake was made, and now the mistake is being repeated in front of our eyes. I think. Listen, P. T. Carroll. Great to talk to you. Thanks a million.
6: Thanks
1: very much. Alex. Oh, there's blackjack and poker and the roulette wheel, a fortune won and lost on every deal.
3: All you need is a strong heart and a new steel. Viva! Thanks
4: a lot, P. T. Go ahead, you Go ask for question. Yes, sir. And War
5: Federation Championship, Conor McGregor.
2: I think we have been mostly outlining the doomsday scenario of how McGregor would react to another what another defeat would mean for Conor McGregor. But are we overlooking the risk reward, the reward element of the risk reward um, sort of ratio here? And that is that. he could avenge the defeat at the same weight and look like an absolute megastar. I mean, the, the his star would go through the roof, surely, in the US if he was to do this.
4: Yeah, uh, it would. Um, it's just a question of what's an acceptable level of risk, really. Uh, I mean, Floyd Mayweather... <laughs> he it, would never have taken this fight.
2: Would, no. would never have taken the first one and would never have taken this one.
4: No, and that's why Floyd Mayweather has, you know, what was he, 49... Forty nine for zero,
2: and it's funny because you talk about ego. We're, we're, we're saying that ego is what's driving that driving uh, McGregor here. <laughs> it Doesn't get much more egotistical than Floyd Mayweather, and yet he was calculating enough that he could park it when mm-hmm. the need
4: arose. There's no need to make things more difficult for yourself than they need to be. You know, Floyd Mayweather had a pretty good idea of of how good he was, but at the same time, there's no there's no need to uh, to complicate things for yourself. A lot of people who who uh, you know. Mass an outstanding professional record uh, understand the importance of just making sure the dice aren't loaded against you mm-hmm. at any point. You know, it's not like Jose Mourinho is going to ever go and take over West Brom. Mm-hmm. We we were talking about West Brom a lot in the other podcast, you know, as an example of a club. you Jose Mourinho, I don't expect him to take over West Brom at any point. He prefers to take over a club that's one of the richest in the league, you know, that he has got one of the, the, you know, if not the most expensive, certainly one of the most expensive teams out there, you know, while I'm sure he believes in his own genius, at the same time, he wants to give himself, he wants to give himself the tools yeah. to do the job.
5: He managed Portal 13 years ago, so that he would never have to manage Portal <laughs> exactly. again, I mean, that's, you know, that's the whole business.
4: So once you're in this position... It, I mean, he is a—he—he he kind of already is a megastar in the sport now. Okay, he could go up to another level. You know, to to win this fight would obviously be uh, huge. As uh, yeah, huge. But uh, almost any fight that he that he did would would be a big event. You know, really, the if you, if you were to take a, a really rational look at his career, you think, well, the best thing to do now would be to win a couple of fights in a row. Let's win a couple of fights. Let's keep this thing ticking over, you know, and maybe there'll be a Diaz revenge match at some point. But you know, you don't get a belt; you're going to get money anyway. There's a big risk of losing. Uh, I don't know if a lot of kind of you know Floyd Mayweather's manager wouldn't wouldn't uh, wouldn't agree to it.
2: What are you doing? June twenty third to June twenty sixth. Are you heading to Dallas to the Tony Robbins Unleash the Power Within seminar? <sighs> It's a live three and a half day event with Tony Robbins designated to help you unlock and unleash the forces inside that can help you break through any limit and create the quality of life you desire. Learn how you can surpass your own limitations to achieve your goals and improve the quality of your life.
5: Is that Friday to Sunday? I'm not sure. I might just go Friday. <laughs> and
2: in the meantime, geez, big, big event today. We better go. I'd say the queue is building up already. Ken, what's that? Huh? At Tony's pub on Baggins Street. What's happening, Toner's? <laughs> the impromptu Shaggy gig. Mr. What? That's a, str- that's a strange version of Mr. Bimbastic, isn't it? What?
5: Shaggy is doing Shaggy's an playing gig. A, free,
2: a free gig at. Uh, I don't know how impromptu, According to the Daily Age here, Ken, the gig is part of Orchard Thieves Bold Hour. Free in at Toners and Baggett Street tonight. He kicks off at nine. Look how excited you are. Shaggy at Toners. But it will obviously be Jammers, so get down early, unless you want to miss what will likely be the gig of the year nay a decade, say our pals at the Daily Age. And he's in. Well, he'll be in the smoking area, I suppose. I don't know where he'll be, but I know he'll be playing Mr. Bimbastic. They have a lovely little it, snug there, but I mean, I don't know if. Mm. It wasn't me. Really it do you reckon? Do you "Oh Carolina"? Or would he be sick of that one. I know like
5: really ah, he's going to play the hits. Yeah, I mean, if right. he "Angel," play the hits. You know.
2: "Hey Sexy Lady,"
5: "Hey Sexy Lady." don't know how, that one.
2: How has this happened? Me, Julie, with Addie G. You oh, well, that's Addy brilliant. Sir that, that Baron Cohen might make it. Yeah. that would be a night.
5: Mm. Well, you're you're you you want more? There's an impromptu gig happening three hundred yards from your <laughs> office door, and you want <laughs> more?
2: Let's get down there. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Owen. Thanks very much, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thank, thank you, you thanks Ken. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you soon. Take
6: care. Carolina, what? why are you a
1: Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.
5: Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays.